0: You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind.
1: I got
2: a bad feeling about this. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! He's looking at you, kiss.
0: What we got here is a failure to communicate. You could ask yourself a question,
2: do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Uh,
1: I kind of do want to start with an unusual question, though. Uh, people People argue a lot about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Mm -hmm. I want to know if you think this is a Christmas movie because it does ostensibly (laughs) take place during Christmas there's a giant tree and they even have like presents and satchels at one point but it doesn't really feel like a Christmas movie in any other way so this is sort of a proxy for that debate it's like if it takes place during Christmas is it a Christmas movie
0: (laughs) Uh, I think they, they sort of use that as just structuring of like a, a, a big day and a big sort of family day to make all of these events happen. And since this is based on a play, is much more likely for the whole thing to happen in a single day because that helps given the constraints of theater. So not exactly a Christmas movie. I think like putting it on there was just sort of a structuring element.
1: Mm-hmm. And, you know, the lion does have to be in winter, so they had to yeah. pick some kind of month. <laughs> and Christmas. Um, I, don't, I, I normally like to ask, as, as, as silly as the question is, what people just thought of it straight up, just to kind of get the ball rolling. And I don't want to stack the deck on that question too much, but let me just read some of these awards. For the Oscars, Katharine Hepburn wins Best Actress. The film wins Best Adapted Screenplay. Best Score. Nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Peter O'Toole for Best Actor, and of course nominated for Best Costume Design. So, with that said, uh, Slappy, what did you think of it? Well, more importantly,
2: back to whether Die Hard is a Christmas movie. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I don't. I don't have. uh, Okay, actually, I I actually do care. I I don't think it's a Christmas movie. I don't think this counts as a Christmas movie. I think that using Christmas movie that broadly cheapens the like the word Christmas movie. However, the thing like that does the use of someone saying it's just a Christmas movie doesn't upset me as much as inevitably at all the places I've worked, whenever people bring up Christmas movies, there's always one person who kind of sits back smugly <laughs> and says, <"Sty-heart." laughs> Yeah. Uh, so that's my only problem with it is, is that thing. Like they've beaten the system. Right. Right. Um, they found a loophole. But, right. Right. But anyways, this, this dumb movie. All right. I'll talk about this. Um, <laughs> actually. So in brief, and I'll probably hit back on this several times during it is, um, the experience that I had with it was, um, as I was watching it, when I started it, um, I, didn't, I didn't start enjoying the movie. This comes from an era of um, soundtrack and background music that I despise, to be totally honest. I hate the background music of this era, and it's nothing against this particular film. I just, I really dislike the music in the background which is kind of strange.
1: What kind of music are you talking about? Maybe it didn't register with me much. The
2: old orchestral soundtracking of um, of old Hollywood, I guess. Um, yeah, I,
0: it's, I that, just... it's that, I think, sort of, um, I mean, it really originated with Citizen Kane, that sort of music as a, as a player in the film mm-hmm. sort of took over for the next several decades as these massive, uh, massive scores everywhere. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of the or- orchestras uh, behind music or behind movies because it feels too much like a stage production to me then um it takes me it i don't know it unlike other music like i would just prefer i would prefer almost any other music to orchestral music most of the time unless they're actually in an orchestra that's Great. Totally works. I don't have a problem with
1: it. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say, first of all, based on a stage play and that it takes you out of the movie. When we did one of these uh, earlier podcasts about Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, mm-hmm. there's sort of like a lot of artistic elements. You probably remember that, uh, Brendan. Yeah, yeah. And Danny, uh, Winter Triangles for those on the forums, um, kind of mentioned that, you know, the old, the old thing in, uh, in in making a play is that, look, they know it's fake. So don't try to make it real, right? right. Don't, don't hide from the artifice of the production because you're literally looking at people on a stage and I guess that's kind of what they're doing here, um, because, because it's based on a stage play. They sort of had the same uh, ethos. And in this case, what I found interesting about, about uh, the little orchestral swells you're talking about is that they actually use them as tiny little intermissions. I mean, mm-hmm. there's definitely music mm-hmm. underneath, and I can understand that a little bit. But I did like the way they were used to break up um, individual scenes. Like, after a scene, a very emotional long scene, which is basically every scene in the movie, yeah. there's, like a, there's a cut to a vista, and then the music swells, and you sort of catch your breath for a minute. I thought that was kind of a good way to, to, to do that, at mm-hmm. least. Although I agree that it's a little... It kind of added to the melodrama to have it underneath the dialogue, too. Right. I guess it
2: felt more... I guess it just felt dated, but that's okay. But I, 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 don't, I don't pull punches on movies being dated because they have advantages in some ways of nostalgia. Yeah. And this is one of the disadvantages of where that breaks down because the music did not bother me as much as the sound quality. Mm. I really disliked how shrill, like the like the sword fighting... The shrill mm. sword fighting that just felt so thin because of it, um, but honestly, I, there wasn't much sword fighting, so it didn't take a big effect. Yeah, but.
0: there was just the the one main scene in, that was at the opener, which uh, yeah, I understand the the sound complaints, but I thought the editing in that scene was actually really um, that was uh, really sort of a, a grabbing way of uh, of opening it. Um, And I liked for that scene how it wasn't really just showing an overlay of how these two people are going at it, but showing showing this sword fight as sort of in bits and pieces, as if you're not recognizing the whole thing Uh, really uh, is a good way to put you in it in the sense of it's really jarring. You don't really know what's going on. Uh, And so I think it was a really adrenaline-filled scene despite the the sound recording.
1: And sets the tone for the rest of the film. Right off the bat, he's literally fighting with one of his children. And right off the bat, you're not sure how much of it is actual fighting and how much of it is play acting. And that continues throughout the rest of the film. And the first line is, come for me, which is part (laughs) challenge and kind of part plea, too. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, please, please live up to what I want you to live up to. You know, please free me from because I mean, this film's kind of a meditation on the loneliness of power. I think among mm-hmm. other things,
0: I think it's, it's it's interesting to to similar to that to go to the point that you uh, mentioned when we were talking with Danny about you know the idea of play and trying and you know not letting go of artifice. And I think that for me, a lot of the interesting parts of this movie were that the fact that the acting is highly stylized, um, very theatrical, very heavily influenced by British theater. Uh, but in addition to the artifice of the acting, the characters' emotions and actions are, are also very artificial. So they sort of play into each other, and you're never entirely sure. Uh, you know, is this Peter O'Toole acting? Is this King Henry acting, or or is this you know an an actual uh, an actual emotion? And you're never really sure throughout the entire thing. Uh, what's what?
1: Well, it was very melodramatic, to your point. Um, Mm -hmm. Incredibly melodramatic, really. And it occurred to me just last night, actually, a few days after watching it, that it would have been really bad without absolutely world-class actors. Mm -hmm. Like, without the best of the best, it would have just come off as incredibly overwrought the entire way through. Um, because every scene is just so ridiculously charged and lives or dies on those performances. It's kind of like a 12th century who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. They even have like a missing son for crying out loud. Like that's the same <laughs> vibe I got as like this emotional exhaustion at the end of every scene.
0: Right. And so the, that does fill some actors more than others. Uh, John is, is, the person who plays John is fairly is fairly weaker. he has some more sort of twitchy characteristics that really sort of uh, at least, art to me, during the thing, but yeah, I mean, Peter, Peter O'Toole and Katherine Hepburn are some of the best of the era, so
1: yeah, Nigel Terry, uh, played John, and uh, although I gotta say, you know, it kicked it. It kickstarted two different major careers. Uh, the yeah. debut of Anthony Hopkins and Timothy Dalton. Mm-hmm. Timothy Dalton looking like the pure embodiment of evil, by the way. <laughs> um, a, a king who looks like the artist formerly known as Prince with that goatee. <laughs> but 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 very good. Like holding his own at like twenty four years old next to Peter O'Toole.
2: I'm gonna jump on the hate of uh, John though because um, like he was, obviously John was like kind of an intentional heel and he's yeah. also just been just throughout history like that's that's like a fair representation of how people still think of uh king john or later king john spoilers, <laughs> spoilers. <laughs> uh, well technically
0: um, this this isn't it, it's based on history but it's entirely fictional so right it's, but it's not right. exactly a spoiler yeah right.
2: Right, yeah exact but it's actually kind of a um well that and uh, they actually don't think they resolve whether or not human becomes king at the end of the movie uh, which is actually interesting how that actually plays out between Richard and John but uh but he's kind of just like I, I don't know it's it to me it feels like and I am not the biggest theater person, so maybe I'm incorrect in this. It feels like that kind of traditional character—that's just the obnoxious character that the audience likes to just hate on a little bit. Like, not like an evil character, just stupid. Yeah, you get
1: to see the the historical theater influences of pro pro wrestling, basically.
2: Right. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah,
1: yeah, it's no. the same idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, well,
0: I I think that also the uh, one of the purposes with with John uh, is that they were trying to structure each three of the sons as being you know, different aspects of King Henry or different weaknesses that he saw in himself.
1: Oh, man, you totally stepped on my next talking point. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yes, <laughs> yes, no, I, I agree completely. Each son was an aspect of the father. John mm-hmm. is... Well, now I'm going to step right back on yours. Uh, the, <laughs> John is sort of the animalistic emotional side, right? He's lashing mm-hmm. out. He's, he's very in the moment. Uh, Jeffrey, or Jeff, is the intelligence and the cunning, and Richard is the skill and the strength.
0: Right, right. And so he sees he sees them as that, but he also for the most part sees all the weaknesses in them and i think what makes henry the interesting center of that is the fact that he's all three of them is that uh peter retool wears hundreds of different faces throughout the movie he has many different characters that he goes through within being king henry
1: and the philosophy slash theology geek in me has to point out that this also mirrors the transcendentals of greek philosophy which is uh goodness truth and beauty mm-hmm. and there's a more modern christian christian philosopher named peter kreeft who boiled it down to heart head and hands which is something that he says is found throughout all literature, TV, and film. You see it in Lord of the Rings with Frodo, Gandalf, and Aragorn. And then you see it in Star Trek with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And here you see it with John, Jeff, and Richard, too. Like, they represent... So Heart and Head head and Hands is the desire to do a thing, the wisdom to do it the right way, and then the ability to see it through. And each of of the sons has only one piece of this puzzle, which is why none of them can be the king that Henry was. And Mm -hmm. actually,
2: to jump on that philosophical thing is how uh, it felt like the tripartite state slash soul... Of the um, logical, like the logical kind of cunning character, the guardian class, the warrior class, and then the kind of the masses, which would be um, John, essentially, of just like the just they follow whatever their wants are and just Mm -hmm. do whatever. Yeah, which is I mean, it's kind of funny, though, that actually thinking about it in that sense makes it also John is just like all the uh, commoners. And just like, they yeah. just want, uh, just give me what I want. Dresses That's like it.
0: one, looks like one. Yeah, he could easily be mistaken for one.
2: When you say warrior class, I thought you were veering towards a video
1: game analogy there for a second. <laughs> it, it sounded <laughs> really like fast. it. Well, But I mean, it's easy to despise John, but at the same time, it does matter. Like, undirected cunning is terrible. Undirected strength mm-hmm. is terrible. He is the desire. Um, he, he is the passion and the motivator, sort of. And that matters too. It's just all of them are hideous, uh, divorced from the other two.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. you said earlier that it's dated and I think that's really interesting because it absolutely is in some ways, but in other ways it is staggeringly modern for like a 40 year old film, it's like a 40 year old modern take,
0: it's like Aaron Sorkin wrote a period piece. (laughs) Right, I I think the dialogue was was, it it was pretty evident that this wasn't based off of, you know, some Shakespearean play, that this was a modern writer writing this, and it's also, you know, some American writer from Illinois writing this thing kind of imitating british theater so the the dialogue at many points feels um you know they they just use a lot of uh, a lot of words that you wouldn't expect uh in in something of this uh Of this setting yeah
1: and and very self-aware about those influences Mm -hmm. too i particularly like the the line where he says you know where should i hide behind the tapestries that's what tapestries are for you know (laughs) like i have expected polonius to be behind one of them like he's just recognizing that this is something that all these stage plays do is somebody hides behind a freaking tapestry Mm -hmm. it's just like a rule and yeah lots of fast dialogue really long takes i read that the cast rehearsed for six months beforehand
0: and and i think uh that you know back to the Back to the dated point, one of the one of the biggest things that people usually say when it when it comes to that is is the acting. And I think that with something like this, it you can't really say that it is representative, you know, of this of the nineteen sixties or that it's nineteen sixties acting, so much as it is highly, very highly stylized theatrical acting, right? It's this melodramatic acting, which isn't... It's overacting, but overacting with a with a purpose. It's not just there because that was of the times. So it, it was thought through.
1: There's actually a massive difference, more than you'd expect between theater acting and film acting. Mm-hmm. But film acting, it's so easy to overplay it because, you know, you're, you're up close. A close-up, you're getting every little twitch of the face and you just have to act in a very different way. With a the theater, you have to project for the back rows... But the, the subject material for this one is such that the overacting is sort of called for.
2: On the dialogue of the film, also, uh, I do agree that in some ways it is the, the sound, I think, is dated. But ever, otherwise, I've always been surprised. Yeah, there's something
0: weird with sound recording in yeah. the late 60s and early 70s. that It really shows up on the soundtrack, strange. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure what the technical bit of that is, but I'm probably going to look that up soon.
2: But the weird thing is, though, there's n- it's not analogous to the movie. Like the movie is crisp. Like it's always weird to me that like whenever I think of how old movies should look, I think of like you know uh, the movie like I mean, YouTube at the start of buffering or something like fuzzy <laughs> and low definition. But for some reason, it just it's never been a problem. I guess because they still use the same.
0: Uh, uh, yeah. Film. No, well, I that's guess. a that's a different that. Uh, that depends a lot on the quality of the negatives and, mm-hmm. and the actual prints that are preserved. So you'll see, you know, there are probably several movies from 1968 that look horrible, that look absolutely, you know, terrible quality. It just depends on how they preserved it and if the company really cared to preserve it very much.
1: That's interesting. You're right, though, because I've definitely noticed that uh, every now and then it seems like a technology was sort of weirdly ahead of its time. Like, mm-hmm. records, I think, are kind of like that in terms of audio quality. And I think similarly, uh, film, just straight-up film, uh, the fact that the film was not that much better than it is today, 60 years ago, is kind of amazing. Like, right. the, the masters are, for a lot of these old films, are incredibly high quality. And you're mm-hmm. right, the, the sound took a while to catch up, I guess.
0: yeah. But that's, that's the thing. If you watch things like a lot of the early, like Hollywood sound or not the, the operettas, Ernst Lubitsch, uh, one of the great German turned Hollywood directors made a number of, uh, these really, really wonderful operettas with Marie Chevalier. And the sound recording is impeccable in them. It's, it doesn't get better than that. And that was right as they were adding it to, to movies. So it really is sort of on this weird case by case basis. Either they didn't really know what they were, what they were doing as far as, using the sound equipment, or they got new sound equipment that was just buggy or broken. So it's an interesting topic.
2: I think it's got to be the, the technologies that go alongside it, because um, as, as you just mentioned, records basically haven't gotten better. The things that have changed have been um, how you record out in the open air, and like mm-hmm. microphones. And also, there's a lot of shots in this movie where zooming is really bad, at this point even like still shots have basically they're basically the same right? It, right it doesn't look much better today but um but editing and the ability to move a camera has changed a lot where this this movie kind of shows that then like there's like that um i'm i'm actually not sure of the context of av- uh, at all and the movie doesn't explain it of uh, i can't remember names well but the the cunning son jeff and, yeah jeff jeffrey right yeah. uh, has like the little sneak attack yeah, little, in the beginning. That move. was that was right. almost funny the look on his face. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where he just I I guess it's basically just to it's just supposed to show that he's um he's cunning. And, yeah. and just supposed to like he does like sneak attacks when he's like attacking this little regiment or whatever with um with two Well oh, the other thing is like the second one seemed like overkill. It seemed like they overkill. were doing pretty That's what well.
0: I was... That's what I was wondering. I was like, yeah, it feels like it's just overly complicating it at that point. But
1: That kind of mirrors his eventual plan, doesn't yeah. it? He ends up coming at his father from two different angles, too. He gets King mm-hmm. Philip involved, uh, so it's a little bit of foreshadowing. But, like, yeah, his introduction establishes him the same way all the son's introductions do. You know, John is flailing around with a sword mm-hmm. and unsure of himself and a little crazy. And, and, you know, Jeffrey's very cunning. And then Richard is literally jousting the first time and uh, thinking about killing a man afterwards. Um, yeah. Which, that shot, of course, mirrored near the end of the film by, by King Henry, the, the close-up of the face with the sword that he doesn't quite plunge down, which could mm-hmm. be a way of kind of nodding to the fact that historically, Richard does end up as king. The
2: other thing awesome. is, uh, I don't know if you guys will agree with this, uh, but... This movie is basically nineteen sixties Game of Thrones. Just, that's funny. Like legitimately that's basically what this movie is. I don't know why that didn't occur to me, but now that you say it, I'm like, yep, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's even got their
1: little their little Cersei there, uh with uh, Catherine Hep burning everyone else all movie, which
2: she probably got the best dialogue.
0: <laughs> well she's also excellent at delivery, so she can make it look better than it is.
2: I'm also I'm gonna be embarrassed right now and admit that when I first saw the shot, I definitely thought it was the other Hepburn. I was like, "This doesn't look like <laughs> Hepburn at all." I'm really surprised.
0: I think uh, one of the other important things to to note about about this movie, and um, one thing that I noticed more going through it, I was I didn't watch it twice, but I went through and looked at particular scenes, um, which is that. Uh, anthony harvey the guy who directed this movie was also an editor and actually a fairly significant one he edited more movies than he directed actually i believe and he also edited kubrick's lolita and dr strange love mm. so going back through it you notice a lot more um stylistics in, in terms of uh in terms of his editing technique he didn't edit this movie but i'm sure that he had significant influence on right. it right
1: He's probably standing over the He's editor's shoulder. He's probably looking over yeah. their
0: shoulder. He just doesn't cut the pieces himself.
1: And that and as much as it doesn't seem like an editor's kind of movie, um, because there's less showy editing, I guess, it might be more important than your average action film. Because mm-hmm. it otherwise could feel very dull. Right. If you don't if you don't sort of give
2: the otherwise static shots a little bit of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like there's the like some of the close-ups are great too, but that's the going back to where you said if it didn't have great acting, it would have failed. Because if you have a close-up on a face that's not able to pull off like uh, Anthony Hopkins face when uh, he says Christ Henry's at that all that wouldn't have worked and right. so it, it's kind of yeah. You're I, I actually agree with that a lot more that think about it the movie is set up in a way where it was highly dependent on ability to mm-hmm. deliver dialogue and ability to show emotion which the showing emotion thing to me like the faces feels like this wouldn't have been as good of a play because mm, if you yeah. if it relied on being able to see the faces that closely you wouldn't have worked
1: yeah right. that's a good point. It actually seems like it wouldn't have made a particularly
0: great play but you also you also notice uh things like the the power of of uh the actors' voices in this you know Peter O 'Toole has this incredibly powerful voice, and so I think you would hear sort of that resonating uh if you were to watch that in a in a theater
1: and I have a note here to talk about plot, except that uh not really um, <laughs> there 's not that much uh there is the Aquitaine, which I guess is the uh, physically largest MacGuffin in the history of film, just about. But other, other than that, you know, they're fighting over who gets to be king and who gets to have the Aquitaine, and they're sort of similar, and that's pretty much it. I don't really think
0: it matters. It feels like power struggles for the sake of power struggles, for the yeah. most part. And a lot of them end up being sexually charged at the end, or yeah. at, at some point throughout. But, yeah, it really feels like personality crashes clashes rather than, you know, political battles, which is why I think it you know, works as a piece of acting rather than a piece of politics.
1: But. Yeah, and then there's this whole thing about, you know, do they actually hate each other? Do they actually love each other? And the answer, I guess, is yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> yes to all, because they really go back and forth all the time. And to, to what you said about the acting earlier, too, uh, not only do they have to pull off those close-ups, but they have to be very tender with one another one moment and then completely at each other's throats the next and mm-hmm. not have it feel too much like emotional whiplash.
0: Right. And that's where editing can play a very significant role in in shifting the dynamics of not just how how dialogue is being played out, but shifting the, the dynamics of the speed at which people are talking, the speed at which you're cutting, the speed at which you know things are delivered. You can really have a massive influence on uh, how the, how your actors are perceived there.
1: Yeah, and one thing they do here a lot is they take every basically historical rumor and just mm-hmm. treat it as fact. So yeah. there are, su- there are suggestions historically that Richard might have been gay. They say, yep, he was. Uh, there are mm-hmm. suggestions that he was close to Philip because they plotted together at one point. Uh, so hey, they were lovers, sure. Right. Uh, t- uh, pretty strong suggestions that John had a hunchback, so they kind of turn him into a quasi Quasimodo, if you will. <laughs> um, and, uh, there are also suggestions that, some rumors that Eleanor might have slept with Henry's father, uh, and that he wanted an mm-hmm. annulment on this basis, or might have been able to get one. Right. Um, so they just sort of treat all that as either true or very probably true.
0: Yeah, they true, or at least uh, you know a lot of the things. For example, Eleanor sleeping with Henry's father. She is playing on the uh, on that being true, but you know it could very likely not be and that's just something that she's trying to portray everyone's sort of trying to tell their own story and portray what they want to portray in this and so
1: and in her case it's like a double taunt because on one hand he wants that because he wants an annulment at that point in the movie on the other hand he doesn't want it for very obvious reasons it's humiliating and emotionally (laughs) distressing so she's sort of messing with him on two different levels like oh here's what you want okay that this is what it costs you know and it also probably is. It's even more complicated by the fact that if she can sleep with his father, why couldn't his son sleep with her? <laughs> or something else weird and messed up? You know, it just there's a weird right. psychosexual drama woven throughout the whole thing.
0: And she does. And she does that other. She she does play the several other levels too. When she asks Henry to um, to kiss uh, kiss Elise, where she's saying, "All right, you can you can have this, but I but I need to see it." And so. You know that was that was a win for him as opposed to the other one. But
2: by the way, the dialogue when they were doing that part, um, the the kiss me scene, the dialogue right as he was kissing her was actually wonderful. I I love that. And when it ended in this like long thing, was actually giving like a love poem to her. And then um I, I'm, is that enough? All right, I'm an old man alone in a castle, <laughs> and that was just it was it was really cool in that way. To the plot, so the way that I experienced this movie was very separate. Um, I have two very distinct ideas about this movie because I experienced it in different ways. I watched through the movie and um, I started off not liking it that much mostly because I was bothered by the sound. And then it kind of like, as the movie kind of got going with the dialogue getting better and better, I started liking it more and more. And so at the end of the movie, I was like, okay, this was all right, but I want to know more about the dialogue. And so the next day, I just sat down and I read through the screenplay um, or at least the dialogue. And so I have a very, now I have like, distinct ideas about the movie it was very it was very actually i enjoyed the reading more than i actually enjoyed watching the film Mm -hmm. um so right now in my head this was a this was a movie that was better shown as a movie than a play but the play would have been even if it was a play (laughs) it read better than it would be as a play and so it was an interesting thing where it's kind of pulled in two different directions and so one of the main things i came away with um,
0: did you read the screenplay or did you read the play the play, play like or just the okay. dialogue
2: of the play actually, oh, okay. uh, without the stage direction because I found that mm-hmm. uh, what reading the stage direction when you when you've seen the movie doesn't matter as much, right? So well, I was just, just, just wondering because
0: the the same person that wrote the play also wrote the screenplay, so I was wondering like, uh, oh,
2: there are differences, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, sorry, I, I read the, um I guess the maybe just the stenographed subtitles or something mm-hmm. like that. It might, that probably actually makes sense. It might just be the subtitles, but there's. I was trying to figure out why – so because I thought about the Game of Thrones thing um, and just in general how we like seeing people in power have petty struggles, I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out why. One is that sometimes when you see someone who's amassed so much like Henry, there's just a joy and a justice to watching. So the, the one thing that rich people have less – or the disadvantage of rich or wealthy or powerful people, is they have more to lose. And so maybe there's some sort of pleasure in watching every piece of that get stripped from them. Where they've gained all of this, and now they actually have to watch it leave, and that's, that's our advantage. And paranoia. They're paranoid, they can't enjoy mm-hmm. it properly, stuff like that. Right. Um, the, the other thing, though, is for more, I think, more for this play, because we don't actually watch him lose really everything. Um, that was just kind of more of an aside, is having bigger stakes gives air to allowing petty fights and arguments and family. It has, you can, you can have something, have the, the stakes of how it feels, it feels like if you're having an argument with your wife, like you're arguing over grand territory of your own life through like just a huge power struggle. It makes these petty fights feel more like they're actually impacting the world because it does. Mm-hmm. when Your world impacts almost everything. And so when you feel betrayal, it shows the world in upheaval, and that's exactly kind of what happens is the world's brinkering on some of like a war in Europe on the outcome of this petty differences in fighting between these people. So it,
1: it humanizes them then, too, because you're right. For us, you know, it feels like a war is breaking out in our lives if we have, like, a breakup mm-hmm. or a giant fight or something. So it's basically saying these are still humans. They're just operating on a different level. The stakes are higher But the emotional conflicts are very similar to what we might have in a day-to-day life. right? Right. The the
2: world appears to actually respond to the pain of the people involved, rather than the indifferent to the monumental suffering that you normally feel. Like, the world just does not care, usually. So this kind of, like, gives people a way to experience it in a way that the world actually Mm -hmm. responds to it.
0: This is, like, a, you know, an interesting way to... An interesting adaptation of plays. And I think that the the idea of adapting other arts into film is, is, uh, is a very interesting and difficult technique. So if anyone else is interested, I was just going to offer um, two films that, like, uh, that are interesting examples of that. Uh, one is Greed uh, from 1924, which is probably the most interesting book-to-movie adaptation. Uh, and the other one is Athon, uh from 1970, which is, I think, far and away the most intellectually interesting uh play to film adaptation i've ever seen
2: for me the last couple thoughts i have are one there's a the my one of my favorite shots maybe i've ever like ever seen i actually really love this shot was uh where o'toole is laying back on the stairs i fooled you didn't i oh god but i do love being king and it's just like a cocky (laughs) guy just sitting down with smug it was fantastic i love that shot and actually it was it's interesting because it's it's easy to overplay smug uh, in a theatrical way because it's kind of like a strange emotion where if you overplay it, then it just comes off as arrogant straight up. But the smugness was wonderful in that one.
1: I'm really glad you mentioned stairs uh, because there's sort of a theme there too. We see a lot of running up and down stairs, more than they technically need to show us. Uh, and they use it first, I think, as a metaphor for, you know, the rise mm-hmm. and fall of various people. Um, and also, just to sort of tell us a little bit more about the characters, there's one shot, it's, I think it's 55 minutes in. All three of uh, the sons run down the stairs in succession, and they run down the stairs in completely different ways. John comes flying around the corner like, you know, Tom Cruise on socks on a slippery floor, and then he kind of bounces off the wall and zigzags down. A second later, Jeffrey, and you you probably can already guess how he walks down based on where I'm going with this, walks down very tight and controlled uh, in almost a straight line. Richard comes out and takes them two at a time. He bounds down them, and I'm like, that is perfect and so subtle and so easy to miss but even if you miss it i'll bet just something in the back of your brain registers the personality
2: reflected in their steps right oh yeah that is interesting um i like that and that's actually something that it would be hard to that's something that would not translate to a play well because stairs and plays are horrible
0: Uh, (laughs) yeah yeah you can't really get much vertical space there Mm -hmm. so that that's
2: kind of something that's cool that's different uh the other thing is there's this one of the things that feels odd about the movie. Is that there is a rising tension and a rising action basically throughout the all of the movie, and there's like this big pull, and then there's this seeming conclusion, like the, the, the climax of the movie with the sword above Richard, and then it just kind of everyone's tired and exhausted, and that, that actually <laughs> reflects fighting. Yes. Like like yes. family fighting, like not war mm-hmm. fighting. That's how they end. Fighting. It reflects family fighting really well. Exactly. Just people have exhausted themselves. They are they they have no anger like left in their mm-hmm. banks like it's not the, the issues are still there and they will remain there but it's just there's not passion driving it anymore so they can't keep it going it takes a lot of effort to have this kind of hatred for each other
0: it, it seemed like this was all sort of bottled up things right because illinois is, is you know trapped in her uh, you know king henry keeps her keeps her trapped so she just stews in there 364 days a year waiting to you know have emotions for one day so it feels like it feels like this was kind of an unusual day for them.
1: That's exactly what I thought. At the end, they just sort of laugh it off, and he's like boisterously laughing on the shore, and everyone's just sort of okay with each other. And she goes off, and I thought, do they just do this every year? Is, yeah. is this like an annual <laughs> terrible tradition? Is this
0: Christmas for them? Some families play board games. Others <laughs> try to start wars. You know? Well,
1: if you've ever played board games with your family, you know it ends up about yeah. as <laughs> dramatic as that.
0: Wild them in the end you've got a hit you can have flaws problems but wild wow them in the end
2: and you've got a hit